0: Hello and welcome to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I am Garrett Ashley Mullet as always. Thanks for joining us this morning slash afternoon slash evening whenever it is that you're listening to this. Today we're going to talk about the limitations of being inoffensive. How do you draw the line on when it is responsible to just keep it to yourself and not say what is in your mind? and not tell people what you think, and not be honest, and not do the thing that might potentially ruffle some feathers, and what is the principle there? We're going to work through a little bit of Romans 14, because that's been on my mind here this week. It was a sermon preached on this past Sunday that brought Romans 14 to mind in part, but not just. Romans 14 has been a feature of a great many conversations over the past several years, whereas Romans 14 is about meat offered to idols. There's a subject in the New Testament church. There's a bit of a controversy because some meat in the markets for the Roman Christians was being consecrated or dedicated to false gods. And so there were some Christians, some early Christians, who said, uh, that's a problem for me. I think I cannot eat this because it's been involved in a religious ceremony for a false God. God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. This feels like idolatry. And then there were other Christians who said, no, it it is what it is. There's meat and God made it and let's just eat it and let's not be upset about it. And so there were quarrels, there were dissensions, there were fights, there were arguments. And you had Christians in the early church in Rome who wanted to make an issue out of this, whichever side of the issue they were on. And so Paul writes Romans 14, writes the whole letter to the church in Rome to deal with issues, and this is one of them. This is the issue that he deals with in Romans 14. But what are the limitations? How do we deal with disagreement without tearing each other apart, without tearing each other down, without destroying and backbiting each other? When is it proper for us to speak our minds, even if it's just an opinion, even if it's just, this is the way I look at it? And when is it better for us to just keep it to ourselves? Is there a point at which that becomes unloving or unrealistic or unproductive or unprofitable or what have you? So, First off, I want to kind of give you a general outline of what we're going to talk about, and then we're going to get into it. And then at the end, you'll see we did cover these points, and I'll point back and I'll say, hey, this is where we came from, this is how we got here, and this is what it is. So, first off, I'm going to give you a thought exercise to consider in light of applying the Romans 14 principle to masks in particular. Masks are the cause du jour right now with COVID. There are a lot of disagreements being had all over the country, all over the world about whether or not masks are feasible, whether we should require masks, what it means if you do wear a mask, what it means if you don't wear a mask. And so I want to give you a thought exercise to consider in light of that question and how you can engage in that question, that issue and be honest and have your own perspective without being offensive we 're going to go into that, and then we 're also going to go into romans fourteen we 're going to talk about what are the limitations if there are limitations there have to be I think limitations, but where are they, and how can we know them we 're going to talk a little bit about what does it mean that uh, we 're told as much as it depends on us to live peaceably with all men. How does that apply here? It seems related. Uh, We're also going to talk about open, honest, and substantive public discourse in an age when everything can be offensive. Seemingly everything is a microaggression or can be called such by people. And then once the internet outrage mob picks it up, it is gonzo. You are now in it. You have done the the, the vile deed. You've said the vile thing. You've Uh, Transgressed, and so you've got to uh, mea culpa, mea culpa. You've got to self flagellate and apologize if you want to hope of maintaining your friendships with people and maintaining your career, even. So, how do we have open, honest, and substantive public discourse when seemingly everything is offensive? The fifth point is we're going to talk about how love is not rude, it's not needlessly offensive but how love is also not easily offended. There's a lot of attention being paid to how love is not rude right now, but we also need to talk about how love is not easily offended and whether there is a proper time to tell somebody who's being rude that they're being unloving, whether there's a proper time, consequently, to tell somebody who's easily offended that they're being unloving. What does that look like? How do we do it? Where do we draw the line? And should we? Should we draw that line, or is that just for our own personal frame of reference? We are supposed to be monitoring ourselves by God's grace and pleasing our own actions and and being a good example. We're going to get into that. Also, broadly speaking, what do love, wisdom, and unity for the Christian look like in a post-truth culture? We live in a post-truth culture. I don't think there's any denying that depending on who you ask and what end of the political spectrum they're on and who they listen to for the news and current events and all that, you will get a different definition or a different uh, list of evidences for how we know that we live in a post-truth culture. But I think everybody right, left, and center would agree that we live in a post-truth culture in which the philosophical zeitgeist has stripped us of the idea of objective truth we don't agree that there is such a thing as objective truth no it has never been the case throughout recorded history that i've read that everybody agreed on what the objective truth was but that's a far cry from saying that there was no agreement that such a thing as objective truth existed it was just a disagreement as to some of the particulars we live now in an age where it is popular it is fashionable it is just the waters that we swim in it's the air we we fly through it is popular to say that all truth is relative your truth is your truth my truth is my truth and so what does loving others look like when that is the feature what does wisdom look like when that is the feature and how do you have unity when everything is subjective how do you have unity true unity as christians You can't have unity with the world and also with Christ, with his church at the same time because they're dichotomous, but you live in this world. You're not supposed to be of it. You're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of your mind in God's word. But how do we have unity as believers when we live in a post-truth culture? And what are the limitations on how uh, well we can strip that post-truth mindset from ourselves and from our interactions with other believers, especially in the context of the local church, but also in the context of writing and speaking. You've got a lot of pastors that have a very wide audience far and away surpassing their local church. And so, you know, when they speak on an issue and you say, hey, that's really good stuff or that's really awful or whatever, you know, how much of their perspective is influenced by the fact that we live in a post-truth culture. And we're just looking at this as another perspective. We're not necessarily looking at it as authoritative. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into that towards the end of the episode. But first, I want to give you a thought exercise to consider. That's what we're going to start off with. The thought exercise is this. Suppose you decide you are not going to offend anyone about the mask issue. But then... You walk into a room with 10 people. Five people are wearing masks. Five people are not wearing masks. Now, the five people that are wearing masks are going to be offended if you do not wear a mask. But the five people that are not wearing masks are going to be offended if you do wear a mask. So what do you do? I think that this question really does get at the heart of my uh, perplexity with regards to uh, excessive efforts as I see it, to be inoffensive. How do you just go with whatever the majority around you thinks is offensive or not offensive? How do you just go with that when there's an even division, when we live in a polarized society or roughly half the country thinks that this list of uh, statements, positions, uh, whatever, is offensive and they're going to be upset with you for taking those things or showcasing them? And the other half has a contradictory set. You know, it reminds me of growing up as the son of the oldest son of two divorced parents. And before they got divorced, there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of conflict. And I have one parent, my dad, who's a native of of eastern Montana. My dad's a native of eastern Montana, comes from a long, long, long line, as far back as we can trace things, of farmers. They were farmers They were ranchers, mostly farmers, uh, Mennonites, and they came over from Switzerland in the 18th, I'm sorry, in the 19th century, in uh, 1830, 1832, about, came over from Switzerland. Uh, I don't know entirely why, I'm still trying to research that out, but all we know is for sure they did come over in the 1830s from Switzerland. And so there was a whole host of traditions that came with you know, coming from a dad who is from a long, long line, possibly centuries. I mean, Mennonites were in Switzerland back in the early 1500s. So, you know, there's a possibility that the Mullets were Mennonites for 500 years before my dad was raised Mennonite. And then my dad in turn, who had a lot of questions about the Mennonite faith or the Mennonite doctrine, Uh, helped to raise me and influence my uh, sensibilities. Now, my mother, by contrast, was from northern Florida, from the panhandle of Florida near Pensacola, if you know where that's at. She came from a uh, set of parents where the mother was the breadwinner. Uh, The father had been in World War II. He had been a nurse, patching people up, patching men up as they came back from the... uh, Normandy D-Day invasion. And so he had a nervous breakdown. He was in and out of mental hospitals and on medication and was unable to work. He was on full disability for the rest of his life through all of my mother's growing up. And so my grandmother on that side, she was a public school teacher and she was uh, pretty well educated. She'd gone to a number of colleges. She taught public school science for 30 years. And Besides just being, uh, you know, from Florida and from a a family dynamic like that, my dad comes from a a large family, nine kids. My mom came from a much smaller family, three kids. It was just her as the youngest, and then two older siblings, uh, a brother and a sister. My dad was the second oldest of nine, the oldest brother. He had one older sister, has one older sister. So very different family dynamics there. Um, Much more of a the, the father wears the pants in the family. Sort of a dynamic, and then you've also got the compare and contrast: uh, Florida culture, Panhandle of Florida, Deep South culture on the one hand, and Eastern Montana, uh, cattle ranchers and cowboys and oil field workers uh, culture, very very different cultures, and then also you've got my mom coming from stock on her mother's side. I would say between the two, uh, you know, my my grandfather Renew and my grandmother Renew. It was definitely my grandmother's influence that was the most most assertive. She definitely wore the pants in the family. Uh, She did most of the talking. She made the decisions. And that's what it had to be, basically, because of my grandfather's mental state. He wasn't well, and he wasn't in a a position to where he could be making the decisions and and, uh, leading the home, unfortunately, tragically. But my... Grandmother, she hailed from uh, Scots Irish stock, and they came over in the 18th century from Ireland uh, after having been from Scotland forever. And in Scotland, the MacFarlands—that's where she came from—was MacFarland stock. They were, uh, you know, clan chieftains and barons, and as far back as I can go, they were uh, some of the first kings of what was known as Scotland, when it started to be called Scotland and it stopped being called uh, other things. And they were before that, they were kings of the earlier iterations. They were kings of a small Christian kingdom on the uh, eastern half of Ireland, the western half of Scotland, a kingdom called Dalriata, which was actually St. Columba's, Launching point for missionary expeditions to the Picts, those wild, uh, barbarian, half animal kind of uh, (laughs) savages that occupied Scotland for so long and uh, and fended off the Romans when they tried to come north. So, my grandmother's people, they were Scots Irish and they were, uh, you know, definitely of a more militant mindset than my father's people. And so me being raised by these two very, very different people, my mother and my father, was a bit of a task sometimes because they had very, very different sensibilities. They had very different outlooks on things. Uh, My dad uh, was very adamant about modesty. And so if we were watching something on TV and a commercial or a scene in some sitcom uh, came up, where some woman's wearing a low-cut top and she's got some cleavage showing or whatever. It was off. We are not watching this. That's it. That's enough TV for tonight. And I think that, in no small part, was informed by having been raised in a very modest uh, Mennonite home. And, you know, he was very much uh, about nonviolence. And he, I think was very influenced by having been raised in a pacifist home. Now, Not that they were always very good pacifists. My grandfather, Mullet, served as a merchant marine in World War II, and his brother, uh, my great-uncle Tim, uh, served as a, a pilot, I believe it was, in the Air Force during World War II. But by and large, the idea was we are not violent. We are pacifists. We turn the other cheek. We make much of that because Jesus said to And you contrast that with the militant, uh, you know, fought in the Civil War, fought in every war they could get their hands on, McFarland's, uh, they fought in the the Civil War, I believe there's evidence from what I've researched that they fought in the Revolutionary War, they came over not too awful long before the American Revolution, they were in uh, the Ulster Plantation in Ireland, that effort by the British to plant... Uh, Scottish Presbyterians in Ulster County, Ireland, and thereby displace the Roman Catholic Irish that were so troublesome, that that were so difficult. The idea was, we're going to put these stubborn fighting Scots in the midst of these stubborn fighting Irish, and they'll just kill each other, and then it'll be a lot easier for us to deal with the Irish after that. (laughs) But... You know that very different mindset. You know they were part of every major battle that uh, I can find in the history books re- with regards to Scotland. Uh, for as long as my ancestors were there, they were in the thick of it. And so, how do you how do you square those two different sensibilities coming from a long line, possibly five hundred years of pacifist Mennonite tradition, maybe uh, on the mullet side, and uh, you know actually, literally, I can go back if the genealogies and the histories, and, I, you know, I've gotten into reading histories of Scotland from the 17th and 18th century just to try and, uh, you know, parse out what's reasonable if there's a disagreement. This guy's saying uh, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and this guy's saying that he was actually the the son of this other guy. You know, how do I parse that out? You know, I can go back to 360 B.C. if... I'm on the right track, and I took the right forks in the road in my research. And they were kings. They were kings and chieftains and barons and warriors. They led men. Uh, I've talked a little bit about James Fisher McFarland before on this program. He was a lieutenant colonel for the 151st Pennsylvania Volunteers in the Civil War, American Civil War. And he led men at the Battle of Gettysburg and was credited by uh, Abner Doubleday, uh, Major General, over the First Corps, with having saved the First Corps as they made a orderly retreat at the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, which in turn saved the Army of the Potomac, according to Doubleday. But anyway, very different, very different mindset between my dad's side and my mother's side. And... You know, I, I'm reminded of growing up between these two very, very different people from opposite sides of the country, from almost opposite traditions with regards to uh, fighting or not fighting, conflict or no conflict, very different uh, homes that they grew up in. And then, you know, my brother and I, younger brother, we would be doing something or saying something, and it seemed like it was a game of minesweeper to avoid, uh, you know upsetting or offending the sensibilities of either our mother or our father based on how different their ideas of what was proper and what was dignified and what was appropriate were. And so now we live in this country where you might have half of the country saying that X, Y, and Z are absolutely the way it's got to be. And you've got the other half of the country saying it's ABC. And so what do you do with that? You can't avoid offending some of the people all of the time, in my opinion. Um, That's a thought exercise for you. Just consider it, uh, take it for what it's worth. But I want to get into Romans 14 next, because that's what the sermon at church this past Sunday dealt with in particular. There were other passages that were brought in as well, but Romans 14 was the meat of it. And with regards to the wearing or not wearing of masks, taking or not taking the forthcoming vaccines for COVID, because that's coming quick, soon. We were encouraged by Pastor Mike to consider the passage of Romans 14 in question in the light of the subject that Paul is addressing, whether we should eat or not eat meat that has been offered to idols. So I'm just going to read for you Romans 14, and then we're going to ask a few questions of the passage. As, I, as I'm as i thinking through this, I'm thinking through this after having it uh, presented and preached on this past Sunday, And I hope it doesn't seem like I'm, um, you know, double dipping or or second guessing what Mike preached on, but this is just me trying to process it and and be diligent, uh, be a Berean about this. So Romans 14, Paul writes, starting in verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit." Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not done from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So that is the whole chapter of Romans 14, verses 1 through 23. And I want you to consider, if you will, every place where eating or not eating meat is talked about in this passage, inserting the phrase wearing a mask or not wearing a mask instead, or taking a vaccine or not taking a vaccine, just substitute that phrase or those phrases, then you have the big idea of this sermon from this past Sunday. And so with that, what are the limitations? Are there limitations to how far and wide we apply these principles in Romans 14? Or is this just everything? Everything we might possibly disagree about, anything we might possibly disagree about, we're supposed to apply this principle. Now, it seems as though at a a high-level view, if you're just quickly reading through it and not digging in, it seems as though this passage is saying that we shouldn't talk about whether we eat meat or we don't eat meat that is offered to idols. It seems as though this passage is saying, just keep it to yourself. And not only keep it to yourself, but when you're around other people who are going to be offended if you do one or the other, then just don't. But then it ends with whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So that for me, that last verse has to be seen, I think, as a kind of bookend on this idea there is a limitation there's a boundary this is not uh, a blank check whereby you tell anybody who is saying something that is a controversial position that they have to be quiet keep to yourself shut up you're you're causing disunity you're upsetting others Uh, you know you're you're not loving others because you're talking about this thing that people disagree about whatever's not done in faith is a sin. So if you are eating something, but you're not eating it in good faith, you're just doing it because that person over there is going to be offended if you don't eat it. Uh, That's sin. That's, That's not good. That doesn't proceed from faith. And so what is the idea here? Well, I think the idea here is remembering the first and greatest commandment. For one, if God has said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. We have to remember our order of operations. First, you love God with everything, every aspect of your being, every aspect of your person. And then second, and proceeding from that, you are loving your neighbor as you love yourself. So this passage is very much dealing with, do not do anything that causes another one, To stumble. And yet, part of the check, part of the balance is, first and foremost, you've got to be loving God by the way that you are handling this. So if your faith is such, you don't feel that you would be honoring God. You don't feel you would be loving God. You can't do this in good conscience or not do this in good conscience because you read what God's word says, and that's what it is, right? This passage clearly means to me that I should not eat this meat or and it's fine. It's totally fine to eat this meat. That is a kind of linchpin that keeps us from just being led away by the fact that sometimes you're going to walk into a room and five people are going to be offended if you do X and the other five people are going to be offended if you do A. And you have to do A or X. They're mutually exclusive. And so which do you do? Well, the tiebreaker is... You should have been thinking first before you even walk in the room, before you're trying to decide whether to appease the five over here or the five over there. What does God say? What is God's character? What has God called us to? Well, God tells us to love our brothers. Yes, He does. God tells us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Yes, He does. God tells us, if we believe, and I certainly do, that the letter to the Romans is Scripture. It is God breathed, that is suitable for doctrine, for correction, for rebuke, for instruction unto righteousness, that the man of God might be complete and equipped for every good work. So I believe that about this. And Paul writes to not do anything that would cause a brother to stumble. Okay, so that's God saying. That's one of the ways that we honor him and we love him. But how do we love God besides just not offending? those around us? Is there more to it? And in fact, sometimes do we have to risk or guarantee offending other people, even potentially brothers, people who say, I'm a Christian and I'm a Christian and I'm a Christian. And they have very different ideas about what that means, what that actually is supposed to bear in terms of fruit in their life. You know, C.S. Lewis writes about this at one point, where there's this fashionable trend in his day, not that we can imagine this in our day, but a fashionable trend wherein somebody wants to say they're a Christian, but then they don't believe Christian Orthodox doctrine. They believe all kinds of other things, and they dismiss Orthodox Christian teaching, and they dismiss the Scriptures as authoritative. And it might seem very charitable to not contradict them if they're saying, I'm a Christian, And there's no evidence to that fact, to that claim. Uh, And also there's a lot of evidence to the contrary because they don't believe things that Christians believe. There are certain characteristics that have to be true in order for it to be valid for you to claim that you're a Christian. And so he says, you know, saying that we're going to affirm everybody who wants to claim to be a Christian regardless of the evidence, regardless of what they actually believe and what they say and what they do, what their life looks like, whether there's any evidence other than their claim that they are, in fact, a Christian, that has every noble quality except that of being useful. It seems very charitable on the face of it, but it's actually not useful at all. You know, we use words to describe things because we want to have a shared meaning and There is such a thing as lying. There is such a thing as being mistaken. There is such a thing as being misinformed. There is such a thing as being foolish and simple. And when we read in the wisdom literature all manner of things, uh, comparing and contrasting folly and wisdom, we're always encouraged to be wise rather than foolish. That's why the wisdom literature is there. Well, that's not very nice, you implying that there is such a thing as folly. Some things are foolish. That's not very nice to suggest that there is such a thing as wickedness and righteousness. Some people are wicked, some people are righteous, or some actions are wicked, and some actions are righteous, and some lifestyles, some orientations that people commit to and build their whole identity around are wicked and righteous. That's not very nice. That's not living peaceably with all men. Oh well, mm, is it my responsibility to stretch that principle as much as it depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all men? Is it necessary? Is it good? Is it wise? Is it godly? Is it consistent with the rest of God's word? To stretch that principle to the point that I just don't ever do or say anything that might upset somebody else. I don't ever contradict anybody else. I don't ever disagree with them. I don't ever tell them something they're not going to want to hear. How much does it depend on me is the question we should be asking with regards to that passage. How much does it depend on me to live peaceably with my brothers, with my neighbors, with Gentiles, as they're referred to in First Peter. You know, the people that are not Christians, that are not believers, they don't follow the way, they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they don't believe that God's word is uh, the Bible or that the Bible is God's word, they don't believe that truth is objective, they think that truth is subjective, and that it is impossible to know what truth is. So your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, I was born this way. And uh, you can't disagree with me or else you're hurting not only my feelings, but you're destroying my self-esteem. You're actually doing violence against me if you disagree with me, if you tell me I might be wrong. As much as it depends on me is, I think, to abide by God's word, to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that lies within me, but to do so with gentleness and respect. I think as much as it depends on me, I have to be even keeled about what gentleness and respect actually are and... I don't just tell myself, "Well, yeah, I'm, I'm being, I'm being gentle," you know, you know, like when you, uh, <laughs> when you have a, a husband and wife disagreeing about something, and one of them says to the other, "You need to calm down," which is a surefire way, by the way, to get somebody to calm down. Just tell them to calm down, and they will immediately calm down. In my experience, pro tip there. But you tell your spouse, "Calm down," and they shout back, "I am calm," you know, eh, no, no, you're not. You think you are, but you're not actually being calm right now. Um, you know, always be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that lies within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. It behooves us to be even-keeled and to be objective as much as possible about if we were seeing somebody else or hearing somebody else talking and acting the way that we are, would we characterize that as gentle and respectful? But that question settled that's as much as depends on us. You know, are we abiding by God's word? Are we saying the things that are true? Are we pursuing righteousness? Are we being humble and admitting our wrong? Are we handling conflict the way that Jesus says to handle conflict? He says in Matthew 18, if you if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother privately, just the two of you. You explain your case. And if he listens to you, great. You've won your brother over. In another place, Jesus says that if you are offering your sacrifice the god in the temple and then you remember that your brother has ought against you which is another way of saying you've offended your brother you've sinned against him in this case you stop everything you leave the offering there on the altar and you go and you be reconciled to your brother you go make it right you go and apologize you go and ask for forgiveness you go and restore him if you've damaged him if you've um, sinned against him and it's in your power to make things right. You do what Jesus tells the tax collector to do, to go and give back to those that he had defrauded. That's as much as it depends on me. That's as much as it depends on you. Beyond that, we don't have a responsibility to be walking on eggshells for the rest of our life. That's not a productive way to live. That's not a fruitful way to live. I'm a firm believer that that actually will see us falling victim to where the Proverbs tell us that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe. We want to be safe. We don't want to be entrapped. We don't want to be snared. So we should trust in God, first and foremost, not be afraid of men. Fearing men is not the same as loving them. You know, whoever trusts in Yahweh is safe. We're told to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We're also told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, That relationship of our fear of the Lord and our love for God is not the same as what our relationship between fearing man and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, loving our brother, looks like. Fear of man does not help us to love man better. It actually diminishes our ability to love man. Now, fearing God is appropriate because that kind of fear is a reverent acknowledgement of his power, of his glory, of his holiness. That kind of fear is appropriate for God, and it's not appropriate for our fellow man. So we need to put away the fear of man issues insofar as those are what are actually driving our mad dash to not offend people in a day and age when everything is easily offensive. Anything that you say, anything that you do, any way that you orient your family in your home is going to offend somebody. Just the fact of your existence, if you're a straight white male. If you're a Christian, if you work in oil and gas, if you're a Republican, if you're homeschooling, if you're going to church, if you, you know, just the fact that you are doing any of those things, however good and noble and just they might be, will offend some people, a lot of people, an increasing number of people, I think. But moving on, let's go on to point four. Which is, how does open, honest, and substantive public discourse work exactly when everything is offensive? How are we supposed to talk about things when everything is going to trigger the snowflakes? Trigger warning, I just referred to a whole bunch of people as snowflakes. And when I say they're snowflakes, you know what I mean. I mean that they melt so easily. A little bit of heat. They were just borderline and they melt and now they're crying, and now they're upset, and now they're yelling at you, and now they're angry, and now they want you canceled. Now they want to dox you. Now they want to scream all kinds of accusations at you because you triggered them. And that word triggered, we've come to associate with people being microaggressed and going off. And what it really is, though, it's a tantrum. You have children that were not disciplined, They were not raised up in the way that they should go. They were not trained up in the way that they should go. Now that they're older, they're not departing from the way that they should not go, that they were trained up. in, their parents checked out. Their parents didn't raise them right. Their parents didn't discipline them. They didn't tell them no. They didn't spank them because they read Dr. Spock, whose son committed suicide, by the way, because Dr. Spock didn't know what the hell he was talking about. But... There's this generation of kids that were, in many cases, raised by another generation of kids that also didn't get any discipline. So they're two times removed from discipline, from being told no, from having boundaries, from having consistent discipline, from being catechized, from being instructed that these things are true, these things are not true, these things are good, these things are not good. Oh, you don't like it? Well, tough. That's life. That's reality. You're wrong. Be right. I'm telling you you're wrong so you can be right, not so I can destroy you. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, if you tell me you're you're disagreeing with me, if you tell me I'm wrong, that's it. You've just destroyed me. Now I have a right to do anything back to you because I'm throwing a tantrum, because I'm a little child on the inside who didn't grow up, who didn't mature, who wasn't raised right. So living in such a time as that, where that is a feature, that is a feature of our society right now. How do you have open, honest, and substantive public discourse? Can you? Can you have open, honest, and substantive discourse? Can you talk about things? Can you discuss and disagree and kick ideas around and figure out what we're going to do if we're trying to seek the welfare of the city to which God has brought us in our exile, as Jeremiah 29, 7 says, if we are trying to let our light so shine before all men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, if we're, if we're trying to take seriously our responsibility as citizens not only of heaven But as citizens of the United States of America, wherein we have a responsibility, we have authority, and therefore, with great power comes great responsibility, we have a responsibility to use the authority that has been entrusted to us wisely in a way that honors God. So how do we do that? How do we fulfill our responsibilities in that regard when a growing and alarming uh, portion, segment of the population is going to be offended by that? They don't like it. They don't want you to talk about that. They don't want you to say that. You know, Mike Pence makes a rule wherein he doesn't meet alone with any woman that is not his wife, and they get offended by that. They are upset about that. Well, no small part of why they're upset and offended by that is because the media told them to be offended and upset about that, and because they're so easily manipulated by their feelings because they have people that are pushing their buttons and stringing them along. And listen to my episode about propaganda and Edward Bernays for more on that. They just go with it. They don't know why they're angry all the time. They're just angry all the time. Well, the reason they're angry all the time is because they're easily offended and because they're being manipulated. And then they in turn are supposed to, like good little minions, go off and manipulate others with emotions, with a temper tantrum. You're going to give me what I want or I'm going to scream and kick my legs and I'm going to fall down on the floor and I'm going to Hold my breath until I turn blue. And if you're okay with that, if you're okay with me hurting myself and those around me, then you are actually the one to blame. No, sorry, you're sick. You are sick and twisted. You're not well. You've lost your ever-loving mind if you think we're all responsible now to give in to that. And now you get to make the rules. You get to be in charge. You are out of your damned mind. That is not okay. And your parents rewarded this all growing up. And that's why you're this way. They just gave you what you wanted when you threw a tantrum. So now that's what you do. You throw tantrums to get what you want. We reward that, and we're no better than your parents. We're just doing the same thing that they did, and we're going to get what we paid for. We're going we're gonna to reap what we sow. In this regard, we are sowing the wind. We are going to reap the whirlwind, and I think we already are. I think we already are reaping it, but by no means is this the limit. This is not the full extent of how bad it can get. Read up on the French Revolution, read about guillotines lopping off the heads of anybody that could be accused of having transgressed the will of the people, read about the cathedrals being taken over and turned into temples to reason. Even though everybody was being exceedingly unreasonable, they were gonna make a big show out of supposedly worshiping reason. It wasn't about reason, it was about worshiping themselves, it was about elevating themselves. I will set my throne above the most high. It was satanic and what we've got brewing right now is also satanic. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, as the scriptures say. So in short, to answer the question of how does open, honest, and substantive public discourse work if seemingly everything is offensive is you have to push through sometimes people being offended at you disagreeing with them. You have to. If we're going to make decisions as a body politic, and that I think is an important distinction between this mask issue issue this vaccine issue, and what Paul is writing about in Romans 14. Romans 14, we're talking about eating food. We're talking about eating meat that's offered to idols. If I all of a sudden decide to become a vegan tomorrow, how does that affect you? Well, I mean, I guess if you're a cattle rancher, if you're a butcher, it might affect you. If you're having me over for Thanksgiving, it might affect you. But I'm not becoming a vegan in a way that is going to destroy your life. I might annoy you. I probably will. Vegans, in my experience, are kind of annoying people. But the choice to not eat meat that's been offered to idols doesn't doesn't infringe on your liberty. It doesn't infringe on your rights. It doesn't negatively impact your ability to exist. There's a difference, though, when we come to masks. If all of a sudden I'm wearing a mask and I'm requiring you to wear a mask, there's a whole host of ways in which that presents problems that imperils the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness for every American. If the masks are not effective, if they're not working properly, if they're not doing what is being claimed, if they're actually making us sick and giving us staff infections and giving us Legionnaires disease and creating social distance in the sense of psychological distance, if they're providing anonymity to bad actors, to criminals, to people that are going to mug and loot and rape and murder, if they're doing all of that, then there's a lot of difference here between masks and meat that's been offered to idols. There's a lot of difference. There's a huge difference. And if you wearing a mask all of a sudden feeds into this idea that we should all wear masks. And if the masks are actually hurting people, they're not helping people. If they're worse than useless, they're actually harmful. Then you just chose those five people over these five people. You didn't choose to be non-offensive. You know, you walked into a room of 10 people, five people were going to be offended, If you wore a mask, five people were going to be offended. If you didn't wear a mask, you can't do both. You can't wear half a mask, you know, a mask over half your face, and then the other half has no mask. You can't be two-faced about this. You are either going to offend these people or those people. A man cannot serve two masters. So then if you choose to offend the people that are not wearing the masks, okay, it, it is what it is. You know, the Lord is your judge. I'm not going to judge you. But you didn't avoid offending everybody. You just chose to offend these people. And maybe they can take it. Maybe they're able to take it. But if the idea was to love your neighbor, maybe there's more to it than just not offending people. Maybe there needs to be more to this loving my neighbor as I love myself than just not disagreeing with them, not contradicting them, not triggering them, so to speak. You know, that leads us to point five, which is that love is not rude, but love is also not easily offended. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he gives this famous chapter about what love is and is not, what love does and does not do. He says love is not rude. And we latch onto that as nice people. And we say, ah, okay, cool. I'm loving. I am a loving person because I am not rude. I look at me. I am always so nice. Everybody comments on how nice I am. They know I'm a Christian because of how nice and cheerful and smiling all the time I am. Love is not rude, right? And so as soon as you say something that might trigger any one of the seemingly endless possibilities of things that people are offended about these days, how quickly do we jump as the church into saying, well, love is not rude. You're being rude. So therefore, you're being not loving. Therefore, you're not loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And therefore, you are not loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. I mean, how quickly does that escalate if we make too much of how easily offended people are? Because we forget we forget that it also says not just that love is not rude but love is not easily offended and where does that responsibility for people to be not easily offended come into play here folks when does that become a thing that we do you know it's so easy the cost is so low to go and tell people love is not rude there's no cost to that nobody's going to cancel you for saying love is not rude zero people are going to cancel you. Zero people are going to boycott your business. Zero people are going to stop talking with you. Well, I don't know. I might stop talking to you. But no, I won't. I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, love is not rude. Everybody's going to be like, yeah, yep," Or they're going to nod somberly, thoughtfully as they think about whether they're rude and God bless them. But love is not easily offended. There's a cost to be paid right now in this time, in this place, if You are saying that if you're preaching a sermon on how love is not easily offended, you don't have to be rude in the way that you preach about it, but there are people who are going to say you were being rude. No matter how you spin that, no matter how you present it, no matter how winsomely, no matter how cheerfully, all scriptures God breathed. And that means that love not being easily offended is every bit as valid a thing to tell people as love is not rude. And if you prefer the one because it's easy I prefer reminding people that don't necessarily need to be reminded it in a way that makes them self-conscious in a way that is designed to introduce doubt and insecurity in them so that they go along so that they don't rock the boat why is that you know why 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 choose to highlight the one aspect of love and not the other and i think the the obvious answer is that cancel culture is alive and well cancel culture will come for you if you really get into the nitty-gritty of love being not easily offended. You know, I really question, should we be telling people they're being unloving when they are rude or when they're easily offended? You know, if yes in one case, then yes in both cases. If not in the one case, then no. You shouldn't be telling people that in either case. You know, it might be a subjective opinion sometimes, quite honestly, whether this person is being rude when what is what goes for manners, what passes for manners is so... Impossible to satisfy, you know, I think about growing up with my parents again i 'll use that example. My mother came from a academic family. Her mother was a teacher. My mother had gone to college to become a teacher, a piano teacher. She uh, majored in piano performance, and she was on her way to a master 's degree in uh, piano pedagogy. I believe anyway, she was a piano teacher. she was an excellent one, and she wanted me to go to college when i finished up my high school days. And my dad, meanwhile, was really indifferent about it. He came from a long line of people that were farmers and hard workers and salt of the earth and blue collar. And you earn things by the sweat of your brow. You don't necessarily earn them by going and getting a piece of paper that says you're really smart and you jump through these hoops. And my dad's sensibilities were very obviously, you need to go get an education and you need to work. But the education piece was kind of like meh. You know, it's, it, you're getting the knowledge. The point is to get the knowledge, not to get the degree. You need to know enough to, to work. And if you work with your hands, all the better. And if you're a smart guy and you can do something where you're working with your brain and your hands, then great. But the piece of paper is just a means to an end. And my mom, it was like, no, you've got to have this status. You've got to have this um, bragging right of sorts that I did well, right? I, I passed the torch. you got a good education. And, uh, you know, so it's like, hey, we've got two different ideas about what I should do as I'm launching into adulthood. I didn't want to go to college because I said, you know, kind of along the lines of what my dad was thinking, I don't know what I want to study. It's just a piece of paper. Why don't I just read books? Why don't I just listen to audiobooks all day? Why don't I be the guy from Goodwill Hunting and, uh, and, you know, check out library books and read those and become, super, you know, wicked smart, as the friend says in the bar scene. Uh, my boy's wicked smart. Uh, you know, why don't we do that? Why don't I do that? Well, it was impossible to serve two masters in that regard. I ended up upsetting my mother by holding off and insisting on holding off on going to college initially. I think it disappointed her that I didn't uh, finish up my college because I didn't know what I wanted to study. And it didn't work out that I was able to please everybody all at the same time when they had differing ideas of what was appropriate and what was what was necessary at that juncture? You know, if you pursue two rabbits, you will lose them both. The old Indian proverb that I got a nifty poster for right around then said. Um, anyway, moving on. We're at the very tail end here. But I want to ask you a question. i want to leave you with a question, which is what do love, wisdom, and unity in the church look like in a post-truth culture. <sighs> we're supposed to be about love. And we have all this wisdom literature. We have all of this wisdom literature we're supposed to be about loving our neighbors, we love ourselves, loving God, and we're called to unity as believers. We're not supposed to be stirring up strife and being divisive needlessly in the church. What does that look like, practically speaking, in a post-truth culture, in a culture that does not believe that truth is objective, universal, knowable, or that you should be telling others, hey, this is the truth. What does that look like Um, I think what it looks like is we know the boundaries, we know the limits, we don't get carried away with some idea of love being not rude to the point that we're unfruitful, we're unproductive, we're unwise, uh, you know, we're enabling bad actors, we're encouraging, we're rewarding their tantrums because they're actually easily offended. We weren't being rude, they were being easily offended, I think that that's what love, wisdom, and unity look like, is that we have the honest discussions, and we give an answer for the reason of the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect, but we don't let cancel culture tell us when we're being gentle and respectful, because they're not honest. They're not our honest participants in this discussion. They don't have a commitment to the truth. They have a commitment to their feelings, and... We need to be about more than their feelings, just like we need to be more about more than our feelings. You know, it doesn't stand a reason that I'm supposed to, as a Christian, set aside my feelings and die to self, and yet the most loving thing that I can do is feed somebody else being self-absorbed. That doesn't make sense. How does that work exactly? If I'm loving my neighbors, I love myself. If, if that's the second to the greatest commandment and is like it, loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind, then loving myself where it requires putting my feelings on the back burner and asking what is true, what is right, I have to do that with the people around me as well. I have to say, similarly, I realize you feel this way, but maybe there's more important things than just your feelings right now, and we need to consider that. Otherwise, we become, I think, idolatrous in the sense of making too much of man having fear of man issues, falling for argumentum ad populum, where you just count noses. So anyway, enough about all that. For now, if you have any questions about this, you should let me know. You should hit me up. I want you to subscribe to my podcast. I want you to do that for me. It will help me out. I want you to leave a review if you can. I've just posted this podcast, The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show, up on Uh, Apple Podcasts, or I've submitted it to Apple Podcasts. I thought it was automatically being distributed to everything that uh, it possibly could be, but I figured out last night you have to actually manually submit your podcast, if it's on Anchor FM, to Apple, and then they will take a look at it. They'll see, does this meet our standards for quality, et cetera, et cetera, and and then they'll um, basically redistribute your stuff on their platform. I think that's handy. I'm excited about it. I hope they accept it, I think they will, they probably will it's, you know, it's a great podcast of course right? so anyway, hit subscribe check it out and let me know what you think, I want to hear from you what you think on this topic, I'd love to hear from you, some ideas for future topics, I love it when people suggest ideas for something to talk about on this program and so with that, I thank you for listening, I hope you have a great day, until next time God bless.